Father in heaven, today we come astounded by your amazing grace. Astounded as we imagine the heavenly throng celebrating your journey from eternal glory to our earthly realm, limiting yourself to our space and time. And as you did so for our sake, even me, taking each one of us into mind as only the God of all creation can, you took steps to redeem us because of your amazing and relentless love so that we might experience new birth and new sort of new infusion of, of being through the Holy Spirit, which is your spirit, <clears throat> that we might experience a change in our nature as well as our limitations. Now we're eternal. While our flesh is limited by the earth, our spirits will be eternal. And this begins at the moment of new birth, Lord. We praise you that you came to earth, you limited yourself, you were vulnerable and small, and all of this so that at some point in the perfect timing that only you can manage, we would be then saved by your grace and suffering and love, and then resurrected like you and with you to an eternal existence. And it isn't just about our life eternal, Lord, but a life of meaning and completeness that we can't even grasp at this point. And keeping all of that in mind, Lord, this eve of Christmas Eve, we are, we are asking not so much for relief from our temporary discomforts and relief from the temporary sadnesses, but, but simply that you remind us deep within our souls of our eternal nature, of our beyond global view of the world and the universe and your master plan. Help us, Lord, to think about our lives as though the angels of the heavenly realm were always visible overhead so that we might not forget that we've been invited to step out of our temporal existence into an eternal majestic existence that's so far beyond our comprehension we can't find the words to describe it and yet in order to make that possible you left all of that glory to exist for a time in our temporal way, even to die like us. And so, Lord, we praise you this, this Sunday before Christmas. We glorify your name. We seek only to please you. For the moment, we will stop thinking about how we're going to please others and how we'll be pleased by others. We will stop thinking about ourselves for a little while and simply worship and praise you with all the hosts in heaven, 
because we simply can't resist it. Make your spirit known to us this day as we worship together and fellowship together in the family that you've made us through our Lord Jesus, who invites us to be co-heirs with him and therefore brothers and sisters in your household with each other. Make us a family of faith, Lord, we pray, especially during these hours, so that you might be pleased as a father who watches the family gather to enjoy each other's company and to celebrate your love. All of this we ask in the name of the one who came to save us, our Lord Jesus, whose words we close with. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen and amen. Today we'll begin with a reading that should be pretty familiar to you as we take our Bibles and open them to the Gospel of Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2, we're going to read verses 8 to 20. In your pew Bible, that'll be on page 1018, 1018. Verses 8 to 20 from Luke chapter 2. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord filled uh, the glory of the Lord shone round about them and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, "Fear not, for behold I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people." For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign to you, you will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God. Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. And when the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in the manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. For the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. So, at first glance, the story of Jesus' birth seems to have been orchestrated by earthly rulers. Caesar Augustus, whom we talked about last week. Governor Quirinius, who was the enforcer in the region. 
Herod the Great, who was the uh, appointed native ruler, but he wasn't really a native, which has always been kind of ironic. They seem to be the dominant forces in this story because they seem to be ordering the events. But as you probably have come to realize, timing is always in God's hands. That timing and conditions are always in God's hands and no earthly ruler, no matter how great or powerful, is really in control of as much as they think they are. Even Jesus would say to the new governor, Pontius Pilate, later in his life, there's nothing here that happens except by God's plan. You're not really in control of as much as you think you are. Now there's a picture on the screen that I have kept for years in my office that I wanted to share with you. It was inspired in me to, this, uh, to go with this image when I made my first trip to the Holy Land because I really got a sense of what things look like in, in person. And as you look at this picture, what you see in the foreground in Bethlehem is a typical, what I call a garage. When I was growing up, one of the homes I lived in had a garage under the house. You pulled in, down the driveway and under the house into the garage. And it's very much like that with many of the homes there. The animals were kept right below the house in a cave. And you see off to the right there, that's a, that's a mount, a mound that you can still see to this day called the Herodium. It was one of Herod's palatial estates that he established in a really interesting pattern because he wasn't actually a native of Israel. And so he had built these various palaces along a route of a day's journey each back to Moab where he was from because he always expected an overthrow, some sort of rebellion. So he had an escape strategy that involved a series of places. You may have heard of one of them called Masada. This one, was probably often occupied by Herod. It may have been the place where the wise ones encountered Herod, but it's interesting how the two contrasts are visible. Herod ruled from a palace. Jesus was in a place made for animals. Earthly choirs and majestic courts sang the praises of Herod and King Caesar, uh, Augustus, and uh, all the various rulers were heralded by choirs and fancy robes and lots of uh, musicians and uh, probably magicians. On the other hand, heavenly choirs sang the birth of Jesus. Herod praised Augustus Caesar as the Savior and Lord celebrating Pax Romana, the peace that only Rome could bring. Heaven's choirs praised Jesus as the bringer of true peace. Herod and all of the other rulers never went anywhere. They were not heralded and, heralded and announced by criers and armed escorts. Jesus was announced by an angel of the Lord. 
Herod sought the praise of the powerful angels, praised Jesus, and shepherds were brought to be the first to meet him face to face. I want to talk about the shepherds for a moment, in particular, the kind of shepherding that happened in Bethlehem especially. If you go back to the book of Genesis and you read in chapter 35 about Jacob's beautiful bride, Rachel, when she died, she was buried in Bethlehem. The passage reads this way. So Rachel died and she was buried on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. And Jacob set up a pillar at her grave. It is a pillar of Rachel's tomb, which is there to this day. Israel, that is Jacob, journeyed on and pitched his tent beyond the tower of Adar. Now, the tower of Adar is an interesting piece of archeology span that's never been discovered, but it's got to be there somewhere. Many have searched for this tower. And why is it special at Christmas time? Well, because Bethlehem is only about six miles from Jerusalem. And Bethlehem was the place just far enough away from the city where shepherds and sheep were kept at a distance because shepherds were not highly thought of in those days. In fact, they were never really regarded as much more than smelly men who provided a necessary uh, part of life. These shepherds in particular in Bethlehem near the Tower of Adar would have been a special group of shepherds because these were the sheep that were kept for temple sacrifice. These were special sheep. The temple sacrifice required a, a, a blemishless, clean, perfect male sheep born without flaw and therefore ideal for the priestly sacrificial system. The priests likely paid for the maintenance of these sheep. And these shepherds, though not thought of any higher than any other shepherd, were special because they kept this particular flock and they had a particular skill set. We would call it animal husbandry because their particular role was to make sure that the sheep were bred to be the ideal sacrificial lambs for the temple process. They were at risk, therefore, of theft. They were at risk because, as with all sheep in the wilderness, there's wild animals to deal with. There's rustlers and thieves and all these various things. And so these shepherds who were the epitome of the blue collar worker, they underrated because they do dirty work, but really blue collar people do so many things we can't live without and they have an incredibly important skill set that we underrate. And here these guys were providing just, sort of, just the sort of service. To do their job adequately, they needed a watchtower. Many of the regularly used shepherds' fields in all the land had watchtowers that were built of stone. They were little cylindrical towers with probably 20 feet high piled uh, uh, brick walls. 
and a floor about halfway up that the guard would stand on like a sentry and watch out over the fields for danger and threats to the flock. What I only learned recently was that that area underneath the watchtower uh, upper level, that little compartment that was created in the bottom of this cylindrical tower that was maybe 20 feet in diameter at most, this was the place the shepherds would bring a ewe that was in the process of giving birth. It was the ideal place to take them to help them give birth. And if you're around animals a lot, you know that sometimes they struggle and they need help in giving birth. And so these shepherds were experts in their field and they would take these ewes to this little enclosure under which or above which stood the guard and they would help this ewe give birth to the new sacrificial lamb. The Tower of Adar was a particularly important location because it was more than just a typical watchtower, it was the watchtower for the flocks of the temple. This meant that their place and space were particularly important because it was the place where the sacrifices were born. Strange then that Joseph and Mary would be directed to Bethlehem at exactly the right time to give birth to the last sacrifice for the temple system of sacrifices. Strange then they would be called there. And yet we know from the prophet Micah that this was planned. Micah chapter 4 verse 8 says, And you, O tower of the flock, hill of daughter Zion, to you it shall come, the former dominion shall come, the sovereignty of daughter Jerusalem. He's describing in these passages how the Savior will be born in Bethlehem and named specifically is the tower, a unique tower that was central to the temple flock process in those times. Now some have speculated, though it hasn't been proven yet, that when they could find no room in the homes and the various inns of Bethlehem, it's quite possible they were driven to a place, maybe even the tower of Adar, where animals were kept, in particular, use giving birth for the temple sacrifice. This can't be proven at this time. But if it were true, there would be a lot of extra nuance to this Christmas story, wouldn't there? Wouldn't it be interesting? Wouldn't it be fascinating to find out that the Savior of all humanity, of all creation, was born in the same place that all of the temple sacrifices were born? Jesus would later present himself on a date that was precisely marked by the angel Gabriel in the book of Daniel as the temple sacrifice. There would come a day, we call it the triumphal entry, 
when he would present himself at the temple as the sacrifice to end all sacrifices. Wouldn't it be interesting? Micah says in a little bit later in chapter 5, But you, O Bethlehem of Ephrathah, <laughs> I said that totally wrong, who are one of the little clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to rule in Israel, whose origin is from of old, from ancient days. Therefore, he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has brought forth, then the rest of his kindred shall return to the people of Israel, and he shall stand and feed his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall live secure. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be the one of peace. A little bit mysterious, but clearly indicating that the one they are waiting for, their deliverer, their savior. Micah wrote when Israel had ceased to be a nation for a time, would be born around the tower of Adar in Bethlehem. The Mishnah, one of the governing uh, books of the Jewish tradition, indicates clearly that animals were kept in a place like that. And we know that Jesus was born in a place where animals were kept. I tell you all this just to help you really appreciate the majesty of Scripture. And the, the, the countless nuances of Scripture, the more you study it, the more you realize this is a message from God to all of humanity, and it is loaded with lots of little secrets yet to be discovered, and God even praises in Scripture those who would devote themselves to what he calls the mission of kings, to study Scripture and discover its rich meanings. Okay. So what really happened then that night? This is the most important thing. This other stuff is fascinating, but what's really important is that we learn that when the, the angels heralded the birth of this child, when that star shone in the night right over the place where he was on, on that night that we think of as Christmas Eve, but sorry, it's probably not Christmas Eve. It's okay. Doesn't matter. It really doesn't matter. We'll talk more about that tomorrow night, that star, those angels. But for now, just imagine that the God of all creation has been reduced to a helpless babe. Maybe born in the same way as the lamb is born. And that sloppy, messy little space devoted to that purpose. And then wrapped in swaddling cloths. And this is something that you have to dig a little deeper to understand. Mothers in those days had a tradition, and midwives, of wrapping newborns tightly in swaddling cloths, in little strips of linen. They'd wrap the legs and wrap the arms and then wrap their little bodies so that they looked like little mummies. They were mommy's mummies. I'm sorry I said that but I can't help it. Here's what's really fascinating. 
It's the same way they wrap bodies after death. It's the same way they wrapped Jesus when he died. And so at the beginning of this unbelievable, majestic event where the Lord God of creation descends from outside of space and time from a wholly other existence and enters into our reality for a time, the first thing that happens is that he is wrapped tightly and secured in such a way that he couldn't move if he wanted to. And we know that eventually he would submit himself in the same way to the cross and then to the grave. And then by the power of his own will, he would arise from death and emerge from that tomb just as he emerged from that womb. And why? Because the God of the kingdom that is to be came to dwell in the limited existence we have tainted by sin for a time so that we could then go to be part of that kingdom. Christmas is an expression of a lot of worldly traditions, as you know, and most of them don't have much to do with the birth of Jesus, really. But one thing that we can focus on, and I hope you will, through it all, is that for one night in Bethlehem, that broken dream that is this fallen existence we call life as we know it, was temporarily melded together with the eternal glory of God so that for a moment on a very unique evening in all of human history, earth and heaven were one as all the realm of heaven sang the glory of God and the birth of the Savior. And for just a moment, all of creation together in one voice was celebrating the wonders of his love. Focus on that this Christmas, would you? Let us pray. O oh God of mercy and grace and glory and majesty, we are humbled by this story the story of perfect timing and remarkable nuance. We're humbled by the way that you have entered into our existence so that you could bring us back to the real true existence we call the kingdom of God. Well, God have mercy on us as we unintentionally divert our attention from you because of all of the worldly expectations associated with this holiday. Help us in the midst of it all to see you clearly. To see each gift as an imitation of those who sought to glorify you as a helpless infant. To see each receiving of a gift as a sign of your love given unconditionally and Lord finally as we ponder the glory of heaven on earth that night let our songs reflect it with our joy and our reverence I pray in Jesus name amen mm -hmm.